In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are now a few days into our Lenten observance and have arrived at one of the first mile markers of that journey, the first Sunday in Lent. Traditionally, the gospel reading is that of Jesus facing the temptations of the devil, of Satan. And this year, we hear that account from the gospel according to St. Luke. To take this temptation and this story of it and romanticize it or simplify it must be avoided at all costs. For example, I have heard many sermons that say something like this. Jesus went into the desert and didn't eat for 40 days. Satan came when Jesus was weak and told him to turn stones to bread, to bow down and worship him, or to throw himself from the temple, all to prove that he is God. He didn't do any of those things because he is, after all, God and really didn't have to struggle much with those enticements. But we, you and me, are human. And so we do face temptations every day. And we hope and pray that we can become as strong as Jesus. Unfortunately, this misses important points in the reading and part of the reasoning behind Christ's incarnation. Honestly, a study of this passage would take more time than we have, but there are a few things that are critical to understand before we begin to come to grips with what is happening here. The first thing you must be aware of is this. We are watching Jesus and Satan in battle. This is the battle of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God against the powers of darkness. This is Jesus engaged in spiritual warfare that is being launched upon him by the devil. Now, the end of Luke 3, the verses that precede our reading, is a genealogy of Jesus. But rather than presenting the genealogy like Matthew does, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat, and so on, Luke begins with Jesus and works backwards from Jesus to Joseph and onwards until we get to the end of the passage which says Jesus was the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke, and St. Paul also picks this theme up in some of his epistles, Luke is saying that Jesus is the second Adam, the Adam who has come to restore creation. Jesus, as a descendant of Adam, has come to set everything right that failed in Adam after he disobeyed God. But what we also know is that Jesus came as God as well. This perfect God and perfect man, or fully God and fully man, comes to us, lives life as one of us, and in living that life like us, he makes himself subject to everything that we are. Jesus grows hungry. Jesus grows tired. Jesus slept. Jesus, being human as well as God, did indeed bleed, 
as we see in the Passion narrative. Jesus, coming to pick up the pieces of what was broken in Adam, does not, as St. Paul says, regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. And all of that leads us to the first temptation. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. The temptation to turn the stone into bread is not about Jesus satisfying his hunger. The temptation is that of therogy, which is the temptation for Jesus to use his power to change the elements of creation as a divine being, into something to satisfy the cravings of his human nature. The temptation is for Jesus to disrupt the relationship of the Trinity, to go against the will of the Father who spoke those stones into being stone. And for Jesus the Son, the word spoken, to turn those stones into something that they were not intended to be, to turn them into bread. Eating is not the temptation. Going to the market and purchasing bread to satisfy his hunger is not the temptation. Seeing a house in the distance and smelling fresh bread baking and wondering if they will share is not the temptation. Using his power in a way that is unintended and which goes against the order of creation is the temptation. If he can command the stones to become bread in private because no one may ever see and know, why might he not be tempted to do this in public or on the cross? In this way, by not using his power, Jesus displays to us that he can withstand the allures of pleasure by simply not creating things he desires. He is no magician or conjurer of cheap tricks. And you can hear the devil whispering in Jesus' mind, well, if you don't think you can use your power, then how about using mine? I will give you all the nations, all the powers of this world that belong to me, and I will give you all the fame, prestige, wealth, power. I ask only one thing in return. Worship me. Worship greed and gluttony and lust and pride. If you're not capable of acting on your own behalf, let the world act on your behalf with all of its military might and political power. The temptation here is not Jesus, it's not just for Jesus to take up arms or to lead a military revolution, but the temptation is to seed 
his divinity, to cast it aside into his humanity, giving his humanity full control of his actions. And if he would have, he would have been turning his back on his father, serving the interests of the devil. He would have been acting as an agent of this world rather than as the Son of God, whom he served as a member of the Trinity. If the humanity of Jesus would have prevailed, then the second Adam would have fallen in the same way that the first Adam did. The last temptation of Christ, to throw himself from the temple, is perhaps the most harrowing of them all. This is the temptation of self-will, of self-identity. Listen to what the devil says. If you are the Son of God, and by the way, you think you are Jesus, I halfway believe you are Jesus, prove it. Prove it to yourself. Prove it to me. Prove it to all the people who will be watching you. If you throw yourself down now and God saves you, then everyone will know that you are the Messiah and everyone will believe in you. You don't have to go through all this ministry stuff. You don't need to be slumming around with the poor. You don't need to touch those infected, sick people. You don't need to hear the cries of anguish from people who have had children die. It is so much easier this way. You don't have to go through this whole cross and death thing. The people won't allow it. Throw yourself down. Make God act and prove that God is God. And if Jesus would have done that, then we would have no hope that I know of for redemption from our sins and the sins of the world. The battle raged, and it continues to rage. So, friends, when was the last time we used our power to satisfy our wants and cravings? When have we used our power to not stop an injustice because it might be too inconvenient? Do we know where our clothes come from? Do we know if they are made in a sweatshop with the young and the elderly brutalized by slave masters? And if we don't care about people, maybe then the earth. Why do we waste so much food? 
Why do we constantly buy and purchase things that we don't need, accumulate stuff and more stuff? Why do we need five televisions in the house? Yes, have a television or two, but do we really need one in the kitchen or another one as a distraction where we eat with our families? When have we used our own political influence to curry favor with the powerful or to oppress the homeless? Many cities are now forcing those who are homeless further and further out of their cities, ironically away from places that could, maybe, one day, hire them, and certainly from where the services that they are needed are offered because they are unsightly, and they smell bad, or the forcing of people out of their homes because the taxes are becoming too high in hopes of some sort of gentrification of a neighborhood. Or what about the church and us too as Christians? When have we thrown ourselves headlong into the demands of culture and society rather than following the will of God. When has the church universal, the church Catholic, ceased to wait on God's good time to fulfill his will and instead has co-opted power for itself with an attitude that God can simply get over it because it is, after all, the 2000s? Why is it that things which we once considered sinful are being propped up by some bishops and priests and even leaders of other denominations as now something virtuous? The battle of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the flesh and the devil is raging. And we as Christians are on the front lines. We are soldiers. We used to pray, in the former prayer books, for the state of Christ's church militant, the church deployed in this world. We have changed that language to a more gentle bidding. But you see, spiritual warfare is happening. It is all around us constantly. We see signs, but we fail to read them. The church, particularly, particularly here in the United States and the West, has become complicit in many little evils. And part of the way that we do this is to make excuses for ourselves and for our members. The church cannot compete with culture and society, and it was never meant to. But what has happened is this. We have given up our loyalty to follow the cross of Christ and taken up the banners of pleasure, of possessions, of glory, fame, and power. Those are the temptations that Jesus faced. And we are facing them as the church now 
in this present age. Our reading ends with that ominous sentence, when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until more opportune time. Society says, sports are the most important thing your child can do. So we're going to have practice every day, games most weekends. And if your son or daughter misses a game because of church or misses practice because of Bible study, we're going to bench them or make them play on the second string or something. And the church says, okay, we'll see them back here when the season ends. Most parishes and churches used to have Sunday night services be it evening prayer, the last communion of the weekend, or even some sort of Christian formation. But society says that the Super Bowl is more important, or that HBO is going to premiere its new series on Sunday night, or that Sunday night should be all about family. And the church gives up a little more ground and says things like, well, family is important, and so we don't want to interfere with that. And after the Super Bowl, everyone will come back next week. Except they don't. Some of the most recognizable words that Jesus spoke was on the night he was handed over to suffering and death. And he took bread and said, This is my body. But society and culture says, You can't tell me what to do. I'll abort a perfectly healthy baby with no danger to child or mother, because this is my body, profaning the sacred and venerable words of our blessed Lord and Savior who sacrificed himself, his own body, for us. The church is under assault from the world, and we are failing to stand firm. So what do we do? What do we do as a parish or as individuals? Or what do I do as your priest and your spiritual father? The first thing, and we can go no further until we begin to begin, begin to be intentional about it, is this. We must become faithful, devoted, and serious about prayer. I'm not asking you to spend and dedicate an hour each day. I'm not telling you to become a monk. I'm not appealing for you to stand on street corners. But we must pray 
with our eyes on the newspaper and our hearts yearning for God's justice and pray like our litany calls us to, Good Lord, deliver us. Second, we need to get back to reading and studying the scriptures so intently that we know it backwards and forwards. Notice that Jesus himself parried away all those temptations that the devil brought to him with scripture, with the Torah. But also notice that Satan himself knows the scriptures and tried to use scripture against Jesus. This is why we study the Bible in groups. Bible study with good commentaries that you can understand. And they're very important. There is no, well, I think, or I believe it says this, and then go on your merry way. No, the traditions and the teachings of the church as the guardian of truth is something handed down passed on from one generation of believers to the next. That is part of the reason why I am so passionate about teaching. And I wish that all of you, every one of you, would come to at least one of our offerings of Christian formation or our book forum. Sadly, the last generation or two in the Episcopal Church have not done a very good job in teaching Holy Scripture to the generation of us who have followed. And third, we must return to worship God in spirit and in truth. Too many parishes and churches Roman Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran, Baptist, non-denominational, the list could go on and on and on. Make this time, make this into a production. We have to have the right lights. We have to be entertaining. We have to have a preacher whose dress is rather hip and relevant with style. And the focus becomes on the band or the choir or the preacher, or rather sadly, on the good-looking people who go there. And it all becomes a farce because it isn't the Lord God Almighty and the sacrificial nature of Jesus that becomes the focus, but instead some mere mortal man and the cult of personality that runs to him or her. No, my friends, we must return to a worship of God that convicts the heart of sin. It isn't about the songs we sing or what style they're in or even if we like them. It's about whether or not they actually preach the gospel in themselves. It isn't about me 
being some performer who manipulates the congregation into a certain emotion or mood. It is about me helping all of us together to say our prayers, to preach sermons that help us understand the gospel and that compel us to amend our way of life. The liturgy this is about discovering that while God is love and that God is trinity, that God is also mystery. And we need to learn to ask hard questions, sometimes without good answers or sometimes with difficult answers. The church, the Catholic church, is the garrison of the kingdom of heaven. And we are the garrison of heaven here in Portland. And we must be vigilant. Yes, we are a small church, but the gospel spread beginning with 12 disciples. Yes, we are in a season of transition, learning what it means to be a bivocational parish and what that looks like. But the gospel is still paramount to us as individuals. Don't ever forget that the most important minister of the church are not the bishops or the priests nor the deacons. It is all of you, the laity, because you go out into this world daily into places where the ordained can't go. And we should pray daily that we all become ministers to the masses out there. Remember St. Francis' admonishment. Preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. My beloved brothers and sisters, battle against the powers of darkness. Face up to your temptations and quell the enemy. Follow the master and keep your eyes on the goal, on the task set before us. We mustn't give in to idolatry, the worship of this world and worldly pleasures. We must, must look to Christ the author and perfecter of our faith, and present ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.